I remember uh, years ago, the, the actor, Mark Wahlberg, really ticked some people off. You may remember hearing the story, but Wahlberg said that he could have prevented 9-11. Remember hearing about this? Wahlberg was actually supposed to be on one of the planes that crashed into the, two, into the Twin Towers. And he said in an interview that if he were on that plane, that he could have single-handedly disarmed the terrorists and prevented that, that uh, atrocity from happening. Now, if there's any actor that probably could have prevented it, he, he probably could have. I think he's a legitimate tough guy. But a lot of people were, were really offended by that. Um, that's a fairly arrogant thing for people to say. Uh, Wahlberg was supposed to be on one of those planes, but he, he missed the flight. He wasn't on it, and his life was saved. And Wahlberg said that he thinks about that all the time, that, that he should have been on that plane, but for some reason... He was protected. He was spared. Have you ever stopped to think about where you would be if it weren't for God's grace in your life? Have you ever wondered, have you ever thought about what kind of a mess that that you would be in if it were not for God's grace in your life? And think about all the dangerous situations that you've been in that maybe you didn't even realize that God protected you from. I think that happens all the time. I think that there are ways in which God has protected us from other people, from outside situations, from our own foolishness and sin that we don't even understand or realize. I think that we would be in huge trouble if it were not for God's restraining grace in our lives. I want to talk about that this morning, talk about what that means for us. We are three weeks into a sermon series through the last part of the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. We're calling this series, The Struggle is Real. And today we come to chapter 25. And in this chapter, David, uh, the main character in the story, he is about to get himself into all kinds of trouble that really would have affected his life negatively. But God's restraining grace intervenes. So if you have a Bible, let's, let's head there. 1 Samuel chapter 25. And by way of uh, some background, David, at this point in his life, is on the run from King Saul, the king of Israel, who is trying to kill him. So David and about 600 of his men are essentially traveling mercenaries that are living out in the wilderness. They're making uh, a living as hired soldiers. They'll protect people. They'll fight your enemies for pay. So they're basically like an ancient version of the A-Team. Remember that show from the 80s? Uh, If you had a problem, if nobody else could solve it, you would call David and his men. And there's a few characters in this story that we need to be introduced to. We've already talked about David, but David in this story is the ticked off soldier for hire. Um, David is very upset in this story because he and his men have done some work for a man named Nabal. And when they come to collect from Nabal, Nabal won't pay up. He's a very arrogant man. He's a, he's a foolish man. He basically tells David's men, hey, I'm not going to pay you a dime. And this ticks off David immensely. And so David decides he's going to kill Nabal and all of Nabal's servants. Nabal's the second character in this story. We're going to refer to him as the unethical fool. Um, it's interesting that the word Nabal actually means fool, and that, that describes him perfectly. Nabal is a very wealthy businessman. He owns a lot of cattle and and land, but the passage tells us here that he's surly. He's mean in his business practices. So David and his men had done security for Nabal. They had protected his shepherds from robbers and thieves, and now it's time to collect what Nabal owes them, and he refuses to pay. Nabal has no idea just how close to being killed he is. 
The third character in this story is Abigail, the beautiful mediator. Abigail is Nabal's wife. And while Nabal is, is mean and foolish, Abigail is beautiful. She's a woman of character. She's intelligent. She's wise. She's discerning. And she hears what David is planning to do. And so she sets out to meet David and his men and basically talk them into not killing Nabal. So what does this story have to do with us? Well, a lot, actually. In this story, we get a picture of God's restraining grace and what it means for our lives today. So we're going to pick the story up as David and his men are on their way to kill Nabal. So look at what the passage says here. Chapter 25, starting in verse 20. As she, Abigail, came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there was David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. David had just said, it's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the, in the wilderness, so that nothing of his was missing. He's talking about Nabal. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to the wicked man Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him rule over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. As we talk about God's grace in our lives and how we should respond to it, there's a couple of questions that I want to ask. And here's the first question. Why do we need God's restraining grace? Why is this such a, an important thing for us? And here's the reason. Because we are tempted to sin. We are tempted to sin and, and act foolishly. We, we are tempted to not seek God. We're tempted to take matters into our own hands. This is exactly what we see here with David. David is tempted to take revenge against Nabal. Now, David here is on the path to becoming just like King Saul. If you remember from a couple of weeks ago, Saul had an entire town of people killed because one person in that town annoyed him. 
And here is David, and he's about to do the exact same thing. Now, this would not have gone well for David. Uh, we're, not, we're not told exactly what God would have done if David had gone through with this, but we do know that, that God dealt very severely with Saul because of things like this. So it's not a stretch to think that David would have been dealt severely by God as well. The passage does tell us that Abigail, as she's trying to talk David out of this, she says, listen, if you do this, you're going to have staggering guilt. You're going to have regret over this, this bloodshed. So at the very minimum, David would have had all kinds of guilt and baggage and regret later on because of this. He needed God's restraining grace. And so there's a couple of things that we see here about the nature of temptation that we all struggle with. Here's the first. Temptation deceives us into thinking we are stronger than we really are. Temptation deceives us into thinking that we are stronger than we really are. We can be tempted in areas in which we think we're very strong, in areas that that we've had success in. So uh, David, last week, in the last chapter that we look at, you remember this, he shows incredible strength and poise and patience with Saul. Remember that? David had the opportunity to, to kill Saul, who was doing him wrong, and he refused to. That was a major spiritual victory for David. And yet in this passage, what, what's going on? He's presented with the exact same opportunity, but he responds in a different way. He succumbs to that temptation to take revenge. Listen, in our lives, we can be tempted into thinking that we are stronger than we really are. I'll try to explain it this way. I apparently in high school uh, developed some kind of an allergy to tuna fish. Now, I love a good tuna fish sandwich, right? Throw a little mayonnaise in there, throw it on some white bread, not wheat bread, white bread. Delicious. I would eat that every single day. I grew up eating tuna fish sandwiches. But one time in high school, I made myself a tuna fish sandwich, and I got this terrible pain like right in my chest. Like I was on the ground agonizing in pain over this. I assume it was some kind of an allergy. And I thought, man, that was really weird. Maybe it was like a bad batch of tuna fish or something. A couple of weeks later, tried a tuna fish sandwich again. Same thing, all kinds of pain. I said, well, I guess I'm not eating tuna fish anymore. A couple of years later, I start to really, I miss tuna fish sandwiches. And so I said, maybe that was just like a fluke. Maybe that was a weird thing. A couple of years later, had a tuna fish sandwich again. I am on the ground in agonizing pain. This is a pattern that has continued over the years of my adult life. I love tuna fish sandwiches so much that I always, every couple of years, start to deceive myself into thinking, you know, maybe I'm over that. Maybe that was just like a weird little fluke. It never is. It always ends up with me on the ground in the fetal position in pain. Maybe some of you could tell me exactly what's going on there. I deceive myself into thinking I'm stronger than I really am. Now, it's not a big deal with tuna fish, but that is a big deal in other areas of our life. Beware of that temptation. Here's the second thing that we see about temptation. Temptation distorts our emotions. See, in his mind, David is not going to take sinful revenge. He's pursuing justice, right? This guy is refusing to pay me, so I'm going to go execute justice, So interesting to me here that David says the exact opposite thing in this chapter that he said in chapter 24. Notice what he says here, chapter 25 and verse 22. He says, may God deal with with me, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to Nabal. You remember what David said last week? 
Look at this, chapter 24 and verse 5. It says, After, afterward, David was conscience-stricken for, stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid it that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul, and he left the cave and went on his way. David felt justified. That temptation had distorted a very good emotion. It was, it was good, it was normal for David to feel anger over what Nabal had done. But his sinful pride had distorted him into thinking that he should take matters into his own hands. And that's what temptation does to us. It, it causes us to forget God. How many times in your life have you been wronged by somebody? And so you, you lash out at them. You fire off an angry email or an angry text and you think you're doing the right thing only later to realize, man, that was, that was dumb. That was just my sinful anger and pride. Your emotions were distorted by sin. I remember a couple of years ago, I watched a really good documentary called The Interrupters. It's about a group of people in Chicago that call themselves violence interrupters. These people have become so fed up with the uh, uh, the cycle of violence and murder and revenge in Chicago that they decided to do something about it. And so what they do is that whenever they hear of a murder, they will go to that person's family and they will beg them not to take revenge, as is the custom. Now, oftentimes they, they risk their own lives to do so. But they go to these people and they tell them that if they take revenge, if they take matters into their own hands, it's not going to go well for them. Of course, they've not exactly ended the violence problem in Chicago, but they've, they've seen success. And that is why God's restraining grace in our lives is so important, because we are prone to act foolishly. We're prone to act sinfully. So here's the second question that I want to ask. How does God give us his restraining grace? How does God offer it to us? And God God gives us his grace, his restraining grace, in a lot of different ways. But in this particular story, it comes through the correction of another person. And the correction comes from Nabal's wife, Abigail. She is God's stop sign in David's life. And I think that David realizes that. Four different times in this passage, you may have noticed this, it speaks of God keeping David from sin. And Abigail is the vehicle that God used to do that. So verse 26, it says, Now since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed. Verse 33, May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed. It says it again in verse 34, The God of Israel who has kept me from harming you. Verse 39, He has kept his servant from doing wrong. One of the ways in which God will protect us and intervene in our lives is through other people. He will bring correction and reproof into our lives through somebody else. And when that happens, we would be very, very wise to follow the example of David and listen. You know, I remember when I was a, a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor for five years. It was my first job in ministry. It was right out of, of Bible college. I was at this church for five years. And as uh, my time there ended, I really felt like God was calling me to to serve as, as a lead pastor, a senior pastor. And so uh, I was in touch with the church, and they uh, called me, and, and I was just had a couple of uh, weeks left at, at, as a youth pastor at this church. And there was an older gentleman in this church, and he, he said, hey, I'd like to take you out for lunch. And so we went out to lunch, and 
man, this guy just poured into me, just encouraged me, said, I, I can see God's hand on your life and on your ministry, and I think God has, has gifted you and, and, and uh, has, has blessed you for this next stage of, of your ministry. But he said, there's one thing that I've noticed about you. There's one thing that if you don't, if you don't change it, if you don't fix it, I don't think it's going to go well for you in your future ministry. And he began to just humbly and gently tell me what I needed to do and how I needed to change it. And I, I appreciated that, that he was, he was right about that. And that is something that by God's grace, I have sought to fix and change in my life and ministry. Now, don't you wish you knew what that was? I'm not going to tell you. It's a secret. Listen, the question for you is, are you the type of person that listens to reproof? Do you welcome godly correction from others, or, or do you just blow it off? How could your life be better if you would listen to the wisdom and the counsel of others? See, this is the difference between David and Nabal. In many ways, they're, they're very similar. They're both acting incredibly foolishly. The difference is David listens to the correction and the reproof of a wise woman, and Nabal doesn't. Did you notice what, uh, that after Abigail hears what David is planning to do? She doesn't even go to her husband. She goes right to David. Why do you think that is? Why do you think she didn't go to Nabal? Well, maybe it's because of what Nabal's servant said in verse 17. This is what one of his servants said of Nabal. He's such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. You know, people like that, don't even bother talking to him. Don't, don't even bother mentioning that to her. She, she won't listen. He won't listen to you. Don't be like that. Don't be a proud fool when others want to speak truth into your life. And then the question is, will you be courageous enough to speak truth to others? Will you be like Abigail? Will you care for others enough that, that you are willing to come alongside them and say, hey, man, I've noticed something in your life. I think you're veering off track here. That is the test of a real friend. Now, I think that for the most part, we as Christians do not do well at this. I don't think that we do well at offering criticism, and we do not do well at receiving criticism. Oftentimes, we're too cowardly to give it, and we're too sensitive to receive it. When you have to be an Abigail, when you have to correct somebody, what kind of attitudes should you have? I want to give you just a couple of them here, and this is taken from a really great article that I have gone back to time and time again called The Cross and Criticism. You can just Google that if you want to read it later. It's by an author named Alfred Poyer. These are necessary attitudes when offering correction to others. First of all, I see others as people for whom Christ died. This person that I need to confront, that I need to correct, they're somebody that Jesus died for. I come as an equal who is also a sinner. In other words, I'm, I'm not better than you. I'm not on my high horse here coming to you. I prepare my heart lest I speak out of wrong motives. I examine my own life and confess my sin first. I'm always patient in it for the long haul. My goal is not to condemn by debating points, but to build up through constructive criticism. I correct and rebuke gently in the hope that God will grant the grace of repentance. That's what it looks like to confront, to offer correction like Abigail did. Now, maybe you're not a Christian today. Maybe you are here and you've never surrendered your life to God. Here's my question for you. Has God put an Abigail in your life? 
Has God put somebody in your life that, that has told you about God and has urged you to turn to him? Maybe you don't have a person like that in your life, but maybe God's been trying to get your attention through, through circumstances. Maybe he's brought things into your life recently to wake you up to his reality. You know what that is? That's an evidence of God's grace in your life. That's evidence that God loves you and cares about you and is trying to get your attention. You would be wise to heed the advice of your Abigail or, or to allow your circumstances to wake you up and turn you to God. Turn from your sin, repent of it, and trust in Jesus as your Savior. That's the wisest thing you could do. Now, here's the third question that I want to ask. How do we access God's restraining grace? How do we make this real in our lives? And here's the answer. We have to be amazed at the beauty of our mediator. We're told right off the bat in the story that Abigail is a beautiful woman. Verse 3 says that she was intelligent, she was a beautiful woman. So she's beautiful in appearance, but also in character. And David, man, he's, he's smitten from the moment that he sees her. He's captivated by her beauty. And so Abigail hears what's about to happen, and she realizes that if her husband is going to be saved, that she has to act as a mediator between Nabal and David. And so she goes to David. She brings gifts, and she pleads her case. And when she stands before David, man, David, David's amazed at her. He's so amazed that he changes directions. His life is altered forever. God used Abigail's beauty, inner beauty and outer beauty, to restore him and bring him back to God. Now, <clears throat> I don't know if you were struck as we were reading this a bit ago, but Abigail in this story points to Jesus Christ. Abigail points to an even greater mediator that we have in Jesus. Just like Abigail was a mediator for David and Nabal, Jesus is the mediator between us and God, and we need a mediator. So, so look at this. Abigail shows us that our mediator, Jesus, is, first of all, humble. Jesus is humble. Notice what it says in verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. Throughout her speech, she refers to David as her master. Think about this. Jesus was humble as well, right? We're told in Philippians that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. But what did he do? He humbled himself and he came to this earth for us. Not only that, but Abigail and Jesus were both sacrificial. Verse 24, she fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He's just like his name, which means fool and folly goes with him. Right? She, she was willing to be a substitute for her husband. She was willing to take this risk, even at great cost to herself. Didn't Jesus do the same for us? Jesus was sacrificial, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. Abigail goes on to tell David, she says, listen, let, let the blame be on me alone. Jesus said the same thing to God. He said, I'll take their blame. I'll take their punishment. They were both humble. They were both sacrificial, and they were both peacemakers. Abigail made peace between David and Nabal, and Jesus did the same for us in God. Through his sinless life and his, his sacrificial death and his resurrection, Jesus made peace 
with us in God. And so what is the end result here? David's life was changed. His life is altered forever because he was amazed at the beauty of this mediator. The story actually ends uh, with Nabal dying a short time later and David actually taking Abigail as his wife. Listen, our lives will be changed when we are consistently amazed at the beauty of our mediator. The way that we access God's grace in our lives is to go back time and time again to the beauty of what Jesus did for us. It has to impact us. It has to impact us in such a way that we make a decision to alter our lives. You know what the interesting thing about this story is? This all happened without Nabal even realizing it. This guy had no idea how close to death he was. I'm not sure he ever fully understood the the sacrificial grace that was shown to him. But guess what? We do. We do know how close to perishing we were without Jesus. We know the full extent of the grace we received. The question is, are we amazed by it? Are we moved by it? If so, that's a great place to be. God's grace will only come to those who are amazed and humbled by it. Friends, we would would be in so much trouble if it weren't for God's restraining grace in our lives. And and praise God that through Jesus, he has given it to us. We're going to come to this communion table here in just a moment and, uh, and reflect and focus more on this gospel and this grace that God has given us through Jesus. So let's pray together. God, we admit that, uh, man, there are ways, Lord, in which um, we have been protected from situations and from ourselves and from our own uh, sinfulness, Lord, that that we don't even realize. Um, Father, we are so incredibly grateful and thankful for your grace in our lives. And now, Father, I pray that as we come to this communion table, um, that you would make real this gospel that we have just uh, talked about and seen from your word. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.